Well, if you look at your notes, you'll, you'll see my little introductory there about, about Evan Roberts, who was preaching during the Welch uh, re, uh, Revival. And, and uh, I didn't know exactly what the dates of the Welsh Revival were until I, I looked up Evan Roberts. I hear quotes from him and things about him all the time. I knew he was in the Welsh Revival. But it was 1904, 1905. Fiddler, y'all who are involved in Fiddler, remember that's, that's dated 1905. And so while, while the Jews were being run out of Russia, there was a revival going on in, in the, the Welsh, in, in Wales. And Judy's had kinfolk in Switzerland who were being evacuated and coming to the U.S. because of religious persecution and other things. There was a lot going on during that time. But I, I just think that's amazing that God can do so many things in so many places. And some of them we see as really good and some of them we see as really tough. But God's God and he's in control. But back to the Welsh Revival and, and Evan Roberts. He was, he was, he was actually a, a ministerial student during the time. And, and some things were starting. So he went to an area of Wales and to, uh, to do some preaching. The whole revival was, was, was not organized. There wasn't an, an official preacher that brought about the revival that God used to, to bring the revival. It was just people wanted to see God move, and they gathered, and someone would speak, and they would, they'd open the scripture and talk, and they had 150,000 people saved between 1904 and 1905. And it made such an impact on the, the nation, it's a nation country of Wales, that it nearly put them out of the coal business. And this is why. Because the mules that pulled the coal cars were used to, to being cussed at. And when men got saved and they quit cussing, they couldn't get the mules to go. <laughs> That's the truth. And the liquor business... The, the tavern activity was cut in half by the, as a result of men getting saved during this revival. But now, on one occasion, it is told that, that Evan Roberts was a little late for getting to an area, to, to a group that was expecting him. And when he got there, there was a big group gathered, and he came to them and he said, Do you believe that God is here as he promised to be when we gather in his name? And they all said, oh, yes, we believe God is here. So Evan Roberts put on his hat and his coat, and he left. Because that's what he was aiming at, was to get people to understand and to seek the face of God, the presence of God. And, and that's still our, our goal. Now, th that is for those who, who know him, that is what we seek. And for those who do not know him, those of us who know him want the presence of God so that he will move on the lives of those who have yet to come to know him. The thing is, God shows up all the time, and, and, and we miss him sometimes. So I want to talk a little bit about, about you know, how you've been, you've maybe been somewhere and talking to someone, and maybe you're talking about some, someone, and it's, it's not, not a bad thing or, or a good thing. You just, you just mention someone, and all of a sudden they show up, and you say, well, look who's here. That's how God happens sometimes. And, and so the, the scripture that was read there in 2 Kings chapter 6 about Elisha, well, he, he was, God was kind of using him as a one-man CIA to, to spy. God was speaking to him about, about what the king, the enemy of, of Israel was doing, the king of Syria. 
And, and so every time he would arrange a, an attack on, on Israel, well, God would tell Elijah, and Elijah would tell the king, and the king would avoid that, that trouble or send his soldiers in to, to fight for them. And so the king of Syria didn't like that. And he assumed that he had spies, betrayers among his group. So he said, tell me, who is, who's the one who's, who's uh, betraying us? And his servant said, it is no one here. It is the prophet Elisha who is in Israel. And it's like he hears everything that you say in your bedroom. And he just tells the king of Israel. And the king of Israel avoids the trouble that you have and the traps that you have set for him. So the king of Syria said, that's not going to do. And so he sent his soldiers to the place where Elisha was. And Elisha's servant comes out one morning and looks out across the, the pasture. And there are all these army, these, these soldiers and chariots of Syria surrounding them. And he goes back to Elisha and said, we've got a problem. And Elisha says, no, we don't. Lord, open his eyes. And so the Lord opened his eyes and he saw surrounding the army that was surrounding them were the angels of the Lord and all their chariots. And he kind of said, well, look who's here. It's the Lord. He has shown up. There are, there are a lot of uh, times when we see that in, in the Old Testament when we see these, these physical appearances of either um, we, nobody has seen God but people have seen the work of God and the actions of God displayed. Isaiah, now when, when King Uzziah died, it says in Isaiah 6, Uzziah happened to be a, a good king that came behind a, a bunch of bad kings. But in uh, chapter 6 of Isaiah, it says, in beginning in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, that's the part that we focus on. But that first little section is important, too. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah loved King Uzziah. The nation of Israel loved King Uzziah. He had been good. He had, tried, he had made attempts to turn the nation back to God. A nation was in mourning over the loss of a good king, which was rare. And when Uzziah died, and you may remember that before Uzziah died, he, he uh, contracted leprosy. And that came as a result of his arrogance. Things were going so good and God was blessing him so well, he decided that he would go into the temple and offer sacrifice himself as he went in there. And he was not authorized to do that. He's king, he's not priest. And so he went in there and when he, when he started arranging things, then God gave him leprosy. And the people and the priests finally cast him out. And so he lived as a leper from that point, but he was still a good king. He just couldn't, couldn't be among people. And then he died. And the people of the nation were thinking, if this kind of, of, of terrible thing could happen to such a good man, to such a powerful man, what does that mean for us common folk? And Uzziah is praying, and he says that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim that each had six wings, and Two, two to cover their face and two to cover his feet and 
two that he flew with, and one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, whose earth is, who, uh, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Look who's here. And he was convicted of his sin, and Isaiah was a good guy. But he said, I'm just like the common folks, and all of us have sinned, and all of us have, have, have spoken words that have, have disgraced God. We've used his name in vain. We've spoken against him. And so a, 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 one of the angels took a, a seraphim, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Let me ask you something just in reference to last week because I think a lot of y'all were here last week. What did he mean there? What, what fixed Isaiah when the angel, it says the angel touched his lips with a, with a coal? And so should we have some denomination that, that wins people to God by, by burning their lips with coals? No. How was, how was Isaiah saved? How was he redeemed? One word, one name. Jesus. Well, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. Before the foundation of the world, y'all. Isaiah was saved like you have been saved if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be saved except Jesus, but that's off the point. The point today is that God was there. Things were looking bad. Folks were down, but God showed up. Look who's here, they could have said. Well, you get to the New Testament. And there's the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptizer. Not a Baptist, just a baptizer. If he had lived long enough, he probably would have been a Baptist. <laughs> but at this point, he's only a baptizer. So he's preaching that Jesus is coming. He's preaching that, that the Lamb of God is coming. And, and, and he says, even there's, there's one among you. You go over to the Gospel of John. There's one among you that, that you don't know. But he's going to take away the sin of the world. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany. And then a few verses later on down. And then he sees Jesus. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look who's here, the one I've been talking about. You've got the story in, in the Gospel of John as well in chapter 11 where a good friend of Jesus and a brother of some good friends, Mary and Martha, has died. Lazarus has died. They contact him. He comes to them late, giving them an opportunity to know that their brother is dead and there's no hope for him in, in the physical world. His, his spirit, may, a spirit may hover for three days over them. That was kind of the tradition, but it was past the three days, and so they know their brother is dead. Matter of fact, they say when Jesus says, roll back the stone, they say, he's stinking already. 
And Jesus says, your brother is going to, to re- be resurrected. And Martha says, I know he'll rise in, in the resurrection later on, but Jesus said, look who's here. I am the resurrection. In Psalm 16, in verse 11, I believe I've got it marked. You make me to know the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We want to be in that place in the presence of the Lord. And we pray sometimes in in meetings, Lord, be with us, join us, show yourself. Well, we ought to realize who is here. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So where the church is, it's something, and the real church, people who put their trust in Jesus, who come together to, to praise him, to hear from him, and, and, and to learn of him, and to serve him, and to encourage one another in him. Where he is, there he is, because he's in the building process still. So we can know that when we come together in the name of the Lord as his church, he is here. We just need to see him. Realizing that he's here. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he said, And go and preach and baptize and teach, and, and I am with you when? Always. So he's here. Look who's here. And Jesus is here this morning. It's great to have 50 visitors, but it's great to have one we know and who knows us, and that's Jesus. He's here. And Jesus said, again in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, he said, you need to realize that I am with you and you need to to come to me and and remain in me. Let's look at John chapter 15, if you've got your Bible handy. And if you don't, God have mercy on your sin-sick soul. He says, chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that I may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So he's talking to those who have put their trust in him. He's talking to his, 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 his disciples. Now, we wouldn't exactly call them Christians at this point because Jesus hasn't died and shed his blood. But we know that they put their trust in him. We know that's a work of God. And we know that they, their salvation is guaranteed, guaranteed to them because he said, all but one of you is, is mine. And that would be Judas. And so how were they saved? They were saved by one person, one name, Jesus. Even before the crucifixion because the crucifixion was before the foundation of the world. It's, it's as good as done. When God says it, it's done. So he says, you are, you're, you're, you're mine, already you're clean, verse 3, because of the word that I've spoken to you, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Abide in me. That's, that's a, a normal English translation of that Greek word, but another way of, of translating that, that verb is, The word remain, remain in me. 
pay attention to me. Come into my, my presence. Be aware of my presence. Walk with me. You know, sometimes we walk with, with people that we're not aware of. Sometimes people kind of sneak up on you. They're out of your line of sight. I, have, I have really have good peripheral vision. Judy doesn't think so. So she helps me drive. <laughs> and I appreciate it because, you know, you don't know what I'm seeing and what I'm not seeing, so I appreciate that. But I really do have good peripheral vision. I don't know what you call this up here. I don't have any of that. That's why I have these knots all over my head. But, but even with my good peripheral vision, people can sneak up on me. And they can walk behind me just where I, where I cannot see. They are with me, but I'm not aware of them. Jesus is with us. We need our challenges to be aware of him so that we are abiding in him, so that we're paying attention to him, being led by him. And so he says, that's what you've got to, got to have. You have got to remain. You've got to pay attention to me. I am the vine. You are the branches. You have to, have to go where I go the way that I tell you to go. Go in the way that I, I direct you. Whoever abides in me, verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Down to verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So we want to bear fruit. We want to abide in Jesus. We, we want to, to be aware of his presence. We want to, to seek that awareness of his presence. So, so what is the presence of God that I'm talking about? Well, it's certainly not spatial. Now, when we talk about Jesus, we know that, that Jesus had a body. But God the Father, he doesn't have a body like us. He doesn't have hands, even though the, 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 the Bible talks about the hand of God or the arm of God or the finger of God and the eyes of God and the heart of God. But he doesn't have a body. Those are just things that, so that we can handle his movements and the concept of his involvement in, in the life of people. But God is not spatial. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a locality where you can go to find God. Although in the Old Testament, he did set up the tabernacle and the temple as a representative of the place to find God, right? But the New Testament, or even in the Old Testament, tells us that, that God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He doesn't have a locality that we go to. So what does it mean to, to be in the presence of God? Now, in the New Testament, God is in the flesh, Jesus, and, and people could touch him. And, and when we are, are in our new bodies, having died in this world or, or being taken up with him, then we will be able to touch Jesus. He still has a, that resurrected body. But, but what does it mean? To be in his presence. We're not talking about a physical touching kind of, even visible kind of, of presence. Where there are two aspects to the presence of God. Two sides to the presence of God. That one side is our experience. And so when we talk about being in the presence of God, being aware of the presence of God, we're talking about a time when we realize the reality of God. A time when more directly we realize the reality of God. I guess that kind of makes sense. If you realize something, it's got to be real. Realize. 
where, where we understand the effects that he is having on our lives. It, it would be a time when we are more satisfied in him if we're under his grace and in his will. It would be times when we are more terrified of him when we are out of his will and aware of his wrath. So to, be in, to, to seek the presence of God, to be in the presence of God, to be aware of the presence of God is to be aware of and satisfied with who he is. He's our God. He's the one who loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Not the one who is smart, not the one who is rich, not the one who is talented, but the one who believes, who, who by faith accepts that grace that God offers and demonstrated and accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross. So in our experience, we are, we are aware of, and it's, it's real to us, the reality of God. And because of that wrath of God, we're also aware of the shield that Jesus is between us and that wrath because of his blood and his sacrifice on the cross. And when that is real to us, then we will, it'll have an effect on us. There's a, a hymn that comes from Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness, enter his courts with song. To our creator, true praises belong. Great is his mercy, wonderful is his name. We'll gladly serve him, his great love proclaim. So we enter his presence. We are aware of him. And so we draw near to him in gladness. And James, in, in the book of James, uh, verse 4, 8, he says, Draw nigh unto God and he'll draw nigh unto you. So, so we, we seek to come close to him, to become, become aware of him. How do you become aware of him? Well, you have to know something about him. One time, Judy's daddy was in the hospital, and we went to visit him, and we had, had to wait in a waiting area, and they went to get, got, get him, and, and he was coming up the hall, and Judy said, He's back. I notice his steps. His steps are like my daddy. Because we knew him. She knew him. She knew how he shuffled. She knew the sound of, 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 of his, his steps when he was sick, and she knew the sound of his steps when he was well. She knew him. And so we are aware of the presence of God. He's more real to us when we get to know him. And he has, re well, I've always thought it would be really cool to be like the disciples where we walked right beside Jesus. But we couldn't know him any better walking beside him than we do by getting to know him from his word where he reveals himself. All of it is about him, what he's like. And so we get to, we, we, we become aware of his presence by getting to know him and, and knowing what his steps sound like. So the, the one aspect of the presence of God is, is our experience. The other aspect of the presence of God is his expression how he reveals his character 
through circumstances and through his word. In Psalm 114, it says that, the, that tremble, you earth, at the presence of the Lord. Sometimes God does things that, that nobody's even aware of because he's God. So the earth may tremble without anybody even experiencing it, and that's God being God. But when God allows us to experience it, when God allows us to see it, then we are aware of his presence. At times, God makes himself felt, makes his presence sensed by us. Uh, Look at, at Psalm 145. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears the cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. There are times when he allows us to experience his presence. So let's just in the next few moments, let's talk about some tools to seek and, and to, to be aware of the presence of God. Well, I, as, if you look at, the, at the, the notes, you'll see that I, I listed, I started each little topic with, with you, and that's not the way I like to do a sermon. It's not about us, it's about him. But since we're talking about us experiencing his presence, his, his, you experiencing his presence, then, then here's some tools. You and his word. Now, you, you, you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the, the prophets of Baal. And he said, let's, let's, uh, let's have a little contest. 400 prophets of Baal get up there and, and Elijah by himself. And he says, the God who answers by fire, we're going to call him God. You go first. The prophets of Baal spent all morning with all their sacrifices and cutting themselves and screaming and hollering and jumping pews and all kinds of stuff. And nothing. Nothing showed up. It came time for the offering. And Elijah came and the first thing that he did was repair the altar. He put it back like like an altar should be. That's where he put a sacrifice to God. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you don't remember, you can review it later. You and God's word, one thing that we get from the word of God is is how to repair the altar. The attitude that we need to have, our hearts being the altar of God. And so one one tool for, for coming to the presence of God is to come to his word and do what it says. Not just to know the law, but blessed are you if you do them. The commands. And so we prepare, we repair the altar, get back to where we last experienced him, kind of back to Bethel. And then we prepare the sacrifice, and that's us. Well, what kind of sacrifice does God want? Jesus has, has been the perfect sacrifice for all time but Romans chapter 12 1 says I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship 
And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Present your body. That, That doesn't mean to be killed, but that means to be used. And so we come to God saying, here I am. I am ready to serve you. I am sacrificing everything in my life in, that's in the place of you. So here I am. So the first thing, you go to his word. You find out what his will is. You re- repair the altar so you get yourself where you ought to be. And then you say, now, God, here I am. Use me. The next thing is your plans in his word and his will. We learn to depend upon him. In James chapter 4... It says, you are functioning like people who do not believe in God. Down in verse 13, he says, you say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And so what we have to do is get to the point, if we're going to experience the presence of God, then we want to prepare, repair our altar, prepare our sacrifice, and then listen to him and depend on him. You know, sometimes we don't study the word, or we don't read the word. No, I'm not even talking about you know, digging, but I'm just talking about making yourself available to the word. And it may be reading, it may be listening, it may be, be participating in, in a Bible study or in church or whatever, but sometimes we don't do that because we don't have a need of it. We don't depend upon it. We think we don't depend upon it. But your awareness of the presence of God's grace depends upon it. Your doing his will depends upon you hearing from him. So that you know his will. And so you pray to him and listen to him. And so your plans have to be put in his hands. Listen to his word. Find his will. Because otherwise, we're just living as vapors. <laughs> and then finally, you and his mercy. That, that verse in Romans, it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of the mercies of God, because God is so good to you, because you have every reason to be grateful to him, you do this thing. Because of his mercy that has been given to you, you should do what God commands you to do. And one thing that he commands you to do is to glorify him, to show him to the to people around you. And so he's been merciful to us. We need to be merciful. He's been kind to us. We need to be kind. He, he, is, he is no more than, he doesn't pretend to be anything more than he is. Well, he can't because he's everything. But we can. We have to humble ourselves. He's patient. He's long-suffering. We have to be long-suffering, even with fellow believers. Sometimes it's easier for me to be long-suffering and and patient with people who don't know God because I can say they're just acting like someone who's going where they're going. But believers, I sometimes think they ought to do better, including me. Sometimes I look at myself at the end of the day and I say, what a waste. So we need to be patient and forgiving as you have been treated by God be thankful it's what Colossians 3 12 through 17 it's long but I won't we won't go there you can look it up now there's one more thing one more aspect to that for us to act like 
and be gracious and, and great, grateful for the mercy of God and then, and then act that out in relation to other people, that kind of, you go back to that, that sacrifice that Elijah made on Mount Carmel. Remember what he did before he called down fire? He arranged the sacrifice on the altar that was repaired, and then he poured water on it. Remember that? He poured water on it, and he poured water on it, and he poured water on it. And this was in a time of drought when water was really precious. But he's fixing to call for fire from heaven, and he wants to make sure that when people see the fire descend and the, and the, the sacrifice consumed and even the altar consumed, they will know that it was God. If we live like God calls us to live in relation to the world and in relation to one another, everybody's going to know it's God. Just as sure as they'd know that a wet sacrifice, an altar, consumed from fire from heaven is from God. To demonstrate when we live like God calls us to live, because we are aware of his presence, because we are aware of his will, because we are grateful for what he has given us and how he lives through us, we demonstrate the reality of the God who answers by fire. Now, there's another way to demonstrate that, and that is by faith. Of course, we do all this by faith, believing that that God really is with us, that he really will move through us, that he really will enable us to do do the things that he calls us to do. But the starting point of that is to believe that he would save you. If you're here this morning and you have yet to come to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior as your Lord and Savior, then I would challenge you this morning to believe what the Bible says, that Jesus paid for your sin. First of all, believe that you are a sinner. If you don't know that, let me just tell you, you are truly ignorant. Not just ignorant, ignorant. Because the Bible tells us that we are sinners, and if you'll just think your experience tells you that you are a sinner. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever broken a traffic law? Have you ever held back something that you promised? You know you are a sinner. I'm not a big sinner. Well, I can tell you, you're a lot more sinner than God. God's standard is perfect holiness. If you're less holy than God, then you are a sinner who is condemned. So that makes it pretty hard to believe that God would save you. If you believe that God would save you and has saved you by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, having paid for your sin and demonstrating that his love for you and proving it that it's real by his resurrection, then the next challenge is to believe, to have faith that he would save you and to act on that. And the way you act on that is you pray, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin. I believe you will save me, and I put my trust in you. All my hope is in Jesus Christ. Save me. You do that. You believe that God does that will save you? You? You're like believing it, that God answers by fire. And he does. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.